We will continue with our study on Israel. And uh, as you know, we've been addressing this question, has God rejected and replaced Israel? And we've been doing it because this notion has seen in our day a resurgence of popularity. Many, an increasing, unfortunately increasing number, are answering yes, because God has uh, because Israel has re rejected God, he has rejected them. And I tried to make the point that that cannot be if God is to be true to himself. So that what's at stake is not the character of Israel. No, no. It's the character of Israel's God, which is at stake. Does he keep his covenants or does he not? And if the answer is he does not, then when is he going to relinquish his new covenant by which all of us, Jew and Gentiles, are redeemed? So you see, it's a very critical issue. So much so, in fact, as you recall, uh, we consulted the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, who gave this unequivocal answer to the question at the beginning of Romans 11, you remember? He broached the subject, has God rejected his people? He began with, and then he answered his own question with a phrase. He said, may it never be. And then he took several verses thereafter to prove his point. He gave a rationale for his clear answer, why God has not rejected the Jews. And then he began to address his remarks to Gentile believers, members of the church. He did this in our study last week. And one of the things he told Gentile believers is not to have the wrong attitude towards the Jews, but to try to get your attitude even about unsaved Jews in line with God's perspective on them. So he said, you remember Gentiles, whom he referred to as wild olive branches. Remember, he said, don't be arrogant towards the Jews. Now, he continues to say more about that to Gentile believers, because apparently he feels, and I agree with him, you need to hear it. So here we are, Romans chapter 11, continuing where we left off, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, again, to Gentile believers, you will say then, now he's imagining that some might be having this attitude. So he says, you will say them branches, in this case, the natural branches, the Jewish branches, were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Remember, I said somewhat facetiously that you're a new tribe, the graphites, that all Gentile believers have been grafted in. So you heard of the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Hittites? You guys, you guys is the graphites. And so, so he says, quite right. You're right about that. They, the Jews, were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand, says he, by your faith. It doesn't say by your merit, by your virtue, by your value, by your vows, by your promises, by your good deeds. No, you stand by your faith. Therefore, do not be conceited. On the other hand, fear. Folks, if anyone is redeemed, Jew or Gentile, they are redeemed for one reason and one reason only, the gracious, merciful, redemptive work of the Redeemer. 
Nobody has merited it, and therefore the field is leveled at the foot of the cross. Nobody could boast in anything except the cross upon which Christ died. This is the common denominator for Jew and Gentile. And so Paul is saying this potential attitude of arrogance. How could those Jews be so stiff-necked, so hard-hearted? How could they reject their own Messiah? Why don't they just accept him like me and be saved? Well, you know, the only reason anyone here who is saved is saved is that you done got saved by the saving work of the Savior. <laughs> You, you had little or nothing to do with it, nor did I. In fact, we were spiritually dead. That's what the Bible says. And dead people really can't do too much on their own behalf. We were spiritually impoverished, and I don't understand it all. But God intervened and enabled us who believe to respond to his finished work on the cross and be once and forevermore saved. So Paul says, since this is his doing, not your own, don't be conceited. Instead, fear. Show respect for what he has done. Then he goes on to say in verses 21, 22, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. At the present time in redemptive history, I don't exactly like this, but it's true, God is showing his severity to my people. They have eyes that see not, ears that hear not, a kind of a spiritual stupor, a rather severe and justifiable judgment by God on my people because my people, as a people group, have hardened themselves to their own Messiah. So they are tasting the severity of God right now. Uh, uh, but there is the kindness of God shown now to Gentile believers. For a spell, he has set aside Israel and the Jewish people on the sideline. They're not on center stage as once they were. And so he is taking advantage of the hard-heartedness of the Jews to the gospel to offer it to Gentiles. So in prophetic, redemptive history, we're in a period of time now, some referred to as the church age, or the fullness of the Gentiles. It's a time not in which Jews can't be saved. Good night. There's a few here uh, tonight who've been redeemed. But generally speaking, most who are added to the church today are not Jews. They are Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles. The time when God is bringing in to the natural olive tree, as many wild olive branches as who will believe on him. So the character of the church obviously is not Jewish. It's primarily Gentile. But folks, don't think it's going to remain that way. It will not. And so Paul goes on to say in the next verses, 23 and on, and they also, now those are the Jews. He's been speaking to the Gentiles so that they are the non-Gentiles, the Jews. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, 
will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature. Remember we spoke about how this is a horticultural anomaly? No horticulturalist takes a wild olive branch and grafts it into a perfectly good natural olive tree. It's just a mixed metaphor. You just don't do that. That's the point uh, to show us how unnatural it is. I mean no disrespect. I just want to tell you. It's very unnatural for you guys (laughs) uh, to be grafted into the olive tree and come to the place of blessing, the root of the olive tree, which are the Jewish patriarchs, as we discussed last week, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so, So Paul is simply saying, remember, under inspiration, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, that's us. You be wild, we be cultivated. I'm just reading the text, that's all. If this is the case, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, Jews, be grafted in to their own olive tree? You've heard of the New Covenant, right? How could you be part of the New Covenant if there wasn't an Old Covenant? A New Covenant makes no sense unless an Old Covenant preceded it, but the Old Covenant was not made with you. The Old Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, that was made with the Jews. They didn't do too good under the Mosaic Covenant. So as I'll show you in a few minutes... God made a new covenant with them. The old covenant was with the Jews. The new covenant was with the Jews. This is all natural. What are you guys? Wild olive branches grafted into a tree that is not by nature and inherently your own. And therefore, I'm just telling you what Paul is saying here. If you're angry, take it up with him. He's just saying, therefore, this ought to cast out all arrogance towards the natural olive branches. Anti-Semitism, don't you see, is contrary to the biblical perspective. How could you have a point of view about the natural uh, branches that is not shared by God Almighty, who, as I will show you tonight, very much still has a plan for the natural branches. So Paul goes on to say, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a... Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So you see that phrase I alluded to earlier, the fullness of the Gentiles? Until the fullness of the Gentiles is completed, what's happened? A partial hardening amongst the Jews. Does it say a full and permanent hardening? Well, if you're a replacement theologian, that's what you conclude that God is finished with the Jews once and forevermore. So a replacement theologian, and again, it's becoming quite increasingly popular today, would say that the hardening upon the Jews is full and permanent. But I just read you a phrase here. Partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles. So this is not my interpretation, is it? It's just clear and plain scripture. Partial is different than full. What does partial hardening mean? It means, generally speaking, when you think of the Jewish people as a people group, they're characterized by rejection of their Messiah. 
there surely are exceptions to the rule. There's a good-looking one over there, and there's a not-so-good-looking one over here. There's not a lot of us, but there's a few of us here and there, a remnant. But generally, when you think of Jewish people, you think of unbelief, not belief. Why? Because there's a partial hardening that's been imposed upon the Jews in response to their self-hardening to their own Messiah. While this is going on, the gospel is being propagated primarily amongst the nations of the world until the fullness of the Gentiles, the full complement of Gentiles who will believe, comes in. And so then something else will happen. Now, to be sure, for about the last 1,900 years, Israel, the Jewish people, have surely been sidelined. The church has taken center stage in the Lord's affairs as the gospel has been spreading throughout the world. Nevertheless, God has carefully preserved, down to this very day, the Jewish people, even in spite of their unbelief, even in the face of every kind of distress, and even in the face of things like the Holocaust. Remember, we started by speaking about this unbelievable survival of Jewish people even when greater empires have come and gone. Don't you see, God has preserved the Jews down to this very day. He's not through with them yet. This is the time of the fullness of the Gentiles or the church age. Now, when God is finished with the church age and has taken the church to heaven, if you are a member of the, the uh, olive tree, <laughs> the Jewish olive tree, if you come to your place of blessing, <laughs> the root of which is the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you have accepted the Jewish Messiah, you're a member of the church of that Jewish Messiah. And that church is going to be raptured. Come around on March 5th and we'll begin to speak about the rapture and what it is and all the rest. So, so when the church age is finished, because the church has not always been in existence, it's amazing to me to see how many people uh, labor under the misconception that the church always was. No. No, no, no. God's covenant people always was. But the church came into existence in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And the church will go out of existence at the end of the church age when it is raptured to be with the head of the church forevermore. And when that happens at the end of the church age, and when God raptures the church to heaven, then God will once again restore Israel to center stage on world affairs and in redemptive history. So Israel has not at all been forgotten, just partially hardened and temporarily set aside in God's plan. So while the Jewish nation still has a very dark period facing it, are you familiar with the term great tribulation? Look, there's always tribulation. Christians are experiencing even in our day in many places, tribulation. When we use the term great tribulation, we're speaking in a technical sense of a clearly defined period of time lasting seven years, more particularly the second three and a half of the seven, spoken of in several places in the Bible where the wrath of God is outpoured upon the earth. And by the way, if you're a member of the church, you won't be here uh, because his, the wrath of God is not poured out on you. It's already been poured out on your Messiah on the cross. God has no wrath to pour out on you anymore. Jesus paid it all 
don't you see? That's why all to him we owe. Uh, but, but Jewish people still are very much subject to the wrath of God. And so there's a rough period of time facing the Jewish people, the great tribulation. And after that, however, there will be a glorious finale inaugurated by the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the great tribulation period. And it's alluded to here in the next verse, Romans 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be, that's future, right? Replacement theologians say Israel has no future. Will be means future tense. Just those two words annihilate replacement theology. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. An epithet for Jerusalem or Israel. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, a summary word for the Jews. That's God's future plan for the Jews. Now, you see that phrase, and so all Israel will be saved? What does that mean? Does it mean you're saved if you're Jewish, just by being Jewish? If it means that, we have to get rid of masses uh, massive portions of other scripture. Using the Bible as a commentary on itself, we know that can't be it because nobody is saved by race, by ethnicity, by IQ, by merit, by anything like that. Everybody is saved by the mercy of the Savior who is going to be saved. So all Israel will be saved can't mean that. What does it mean then? Let me offer to you two possibilities. You choose the one you like. They both have merit. When you speak of Jewish people today, the thought that comes into your mind is of a group of people who've rejected their own Messiah. You say, however, I know a few exceptions to the rule. I know Harvey, I know Stuart, I know Larry. I know, a few, I know a few exceptions to the rule. So generally, the character of Jewish people today is that they're in rejection and unbelief, though there be a few exceptions to the rule. In that day, however, the tables will be turned. And when you think of the Jewish people, belief in their own Messiah won't be an exceptional thing. It'll be a normative thing. So now when you think of the nation of Israel, you think of unbelievers. Then when you think of the nation of Israel, you'll think of believers. Just as now there are exceptional believers, then being an unbeliever will be an exception. So that's one possibility. Then all Israel will be saved. Then meaning when? Well, at the end of the great tribulation, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. So says our own prophet Zechariah. They'll recognize the Lord Jesus when he returns as Lion of Judah and rescues those who still remain alive at the end of the great tribulation. So that's one point of view. Another one is this. All Israel will be saved literally means every single Jew who survives the Great Tribulation. Many will perish. Those who survive, however, will be so persuaded through tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ that he is the prophesied Messiah, that every single Jew who survives the Great Tribulation will embrace him by faith. That's the only way to be saved. Do you understand that? 
They will embrace him by faith, being absolutely overwhelmed by the evidence pointing to his Messiahship. And thus, every single Jew who comes through the great tribulation will be saved. I don't know which one it is. I'm comfortable with either way. (laughs) Choose the one you want. I'll tell you what I'm not comfortable with. God is finished with the Jews and he has replaced them with the church. That makes me very uncomfortable for reasons which I'll tell you about uh, once again before we conclude here in just a few moments. Has God rejected his people? Well, the replacement theologians say, oh, yeah. But does this square with God's declaration of his future plans and purposes for, for Israel? I don't think so. Look at Romans eleven twenty seven. This is my covenant with them. Folks, again, I mean no disrespect, but it's not you. The them is not you. The them, we've been examining the context, are the Jews. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That looks to me like God still has a future plan for the Jews and that he's not replaced and rejected them at all. This is my covenant. Now let's talk about covenant. God started all this by calling this one guy from Iran, Persia, Avram, Abram. He said, pick up, pack up, move to a place. I'll show you. Holy land, Canaan, land of Canaan, Israel. No, not Palestine. Land of Canaan. Abram says, I'll do it. Oh, my heavens, the faith. He makes it there. And God makes a promise. That's what a covenant is. Genesis chapter 12. Abram, I will bless those who bless thee. I will curse those who curse thee. I will give you this land. And God even spelled out the geographic boundaries of the land. It's not a spiritual, mystical concept. It's a real piece of geography. And Abram, there will always be someone from you on the throne of Israel. This is is a covenant. And it had no condition to it. No condition to it. Therefore, it can't be forfeited because there's no condition. But then later on, God raises up a guy named Moses. You've heard of him. And in order for Israel, a slave people, to become a duly constituted people, they need a constitution, rules. Those are called the Decalogue, the commandments. So God gives these commandments, not to every other nation, to Israel through Moses. And God says, Moses, tell them, live by these things. And Israel says, Moses, tell God, everything he wants us to do, we'll do. Nothing. So my people, Israel, has violated God's commandments. They have violated the Mosaic Covenant. So some people say, since Israel has violated the Mosaic Covenant, they have forfeited the Abrahamic Covenant. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. The Abrahamic Covenant comes with no contingency, no condition. The Mosaic Covenant says, look at here, Jewish people. Now that God has blessed you, graciously pouring out these blessed promises to you, live this way. And if you live this way, you will enter into full enjoyment of all the privileges freely given you under the Abrahamic covenant. But if you don't live this way, there will be curses upon you. 
And that has characterized my people down to this very day. Remember I told you it's a parallel to our situation? Please tell me the condition you fulfilled to be under the blessed new covenant. No condition, just an acknowledgement of your indebtedness, your lostness. You didn't offer God anything. You just admitted, I'm broke. I'm a sinner. I'm a commandment breaker. And the Lord Jesus said, I'm ready to forgive you. I have done everything necessary to take care of your sin problem. You accept me as your Savior, and I will forgive you. That's the new covenant. But you know, though you're a new covenant Christian, if you're not walking in obedience to Almighty God, you're a miserable new covenant Christian. Your disobedience doesn't cost you to lose what's yours under the new covenant because you never paid anything for it. You never merited it. You never did anything to be worthy of it. How do you lose something that was yours, given to you, purely by grace? What you lose is the joy of salvation. Just as Israel has lost the joy of possession of this marvelous holy land and all the privileges which have been given to her by her Messiah. So Abrahamic covenant can't be broken. There's nothing to break. Mosaic covenant can be and has been broken. So replacement people say, ah, since the Jews have broken the commandments of God, indeed we have, therefore God has broken his deal with them. He's moved on. He's trying stuff out with a new group of people, Gentiles. He's given them a shot. He's replaced and rejected Israel with the church. That's not true. You know what he's done? He made an Abrahamic covenant with Abram and his descendants freely. He gave them laws to live by and they broke it. He would have been absolutely justified in saying the deal's off. See ya. Goodbye. But he doesn't. You know what he does? He initiates and inaugurates and offers a new covenant. And we're told about this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. Listen. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So I'm not making this up, right? It's right there. When I will make a new covenant. That's the same thing as New Testament. That was given to the Jews in the old part of the Bible. The days are coming, God says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. You see, it's not with the church, it's with the Jews. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant established with the Jews through Moses on Mount Sinai. It clearly says here, that covenant didn't work. Was there something wrong with the covenant? No. There's something wrong with the people who were parties to the covenant. The law revealed Israel's sin and inability to comply with God's law. So God says, I'm not rejecting them at all. I'm making a new covenant with them, but it's different than the old. Why do you need a new one if the old one is still working? In the new covenant, which is not like the old, the one I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. 
they shall be my people. Nothing wrong with the um, covenant with Moses, but the people proved their sinfulness. So what does God do? We would think he would say, I've had it with you. That's what replacement theology says, but they don't understand God. They don't know where sin abounds, grace doth superabound. God's grace. So God said, no, I'm not going to reject them at all. I will complete my plan through them. I will inaugurate a new covenant. We call it the Brit covenant, Hadashah, the new one, not the old one, the Brit Hadashah, the new one. And what's characteristic of the new one? Something happens on the inside. I will inscribe my laws in them. The laws of Moses on stones couldn't affect a hardened, uncircumcised heart. So God says, I will break through the hardness by implanting my law in them. That's what we have. Something inside of us has changed us. We don't live by creeds or decrees. We live by constraint because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. It pains us when we disobey him. He has implanted his heart, his values, his mind, his very spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit, the Holy One inside of us to make us different from the inside out. God says, that's what I have in mind for Israel. So that new covenant was made with Israel before you guys, with all due respect, got in on it. And Israel has not yet fully gotten in on it, but they will. God says the other characteristic of it is relationship. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's called personal relationship. So replacement theologians say... God is responding to Israel like Israel responded to God. Israel rejected God. God rejects Israel. And that's what we do. (laughs) But God doesn't respond to us in keeping with our response to him. Thank him for it. He responds to us out of his gracious character. In spite of our... Hey, did I ever tell you this? I, I, I had a church in Chicago a million years ago. I think I told you this, didn't I? Hey, let me tell you this anyway. And it was kind of an unusual church made up of Jews and Gentiles. I just got out of seminary and I was doing this stuff. And, uh, but how do you define what kind of church it is? And I wanted to help our members to publicize, promote the church. So I told them, just tell people it's an anyway church. So anyway, what do you mean? I said, well, um, we're, tell them we're a group of Jewish and Gentile people who have broken God's commandments, but who have been forgiven by him, embraced by him, adopted by him, and who are loved by him anyway. Tell them we're an anyway church. But I tell you this, I had a guy, he was an artistic guy. I wanted him to make a sign that said anyway. I was going to post it up here on the pulpit, you know, anyway, to remind people we're just an anyway church. Imperfect, but God loves us anyway. So he was one of these real creative artist guys. So he made it with a bunch of curl cues and stuff. And so from about three rows back, it looked like Amway. <laughs> and it blew the whole thing. It wasn't what I was, not exactly what I was going for. <sighs> but replacement theologians miss the word anyway. 
Anyway is a marvelous word. Anyway is God saying, I know full well your deeds, your thoughts, I know. But I'll take you up into my bosom anyway. I'll forgive you anyway. No, I won't just forgive you. I will adopt you into my forever family anyway. Now I'll tell you how to do it. You have to do it with your big brother and my only begotten son, Yeshua, Jesus. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Replacement theology says as we respond to God, he responds to us. Yeah, but that would make God reduced to our equal. But he is our moral superior. You see? That's why I'm disgusted with replacement theology and get a little carried away. I think it's from the pits of hell especially since it flies in the face of Scripture right over here. Once again, let me remind you of Romans eleven twenty seven. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When is different than if, right? Now, the replacement theologians might have a case if it said, this is my covenant with them if I wake up one day and I'm in a good mood and I'm feeling beneficent. And okay, I'll cut them some slack. No! When is a powerful word. When means not yet, but someday. Someday means future. Future means God has a future plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When is different than if. Romans eleven twenty eight. I'll pick up the pace. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. What does that mean, enemies? Jewish people resist gospel sharing, resist the gospel, don't want the gospel to be shared in Jewish communities. My own relatives don't, you know, they don't want to hear uh, the gospel from me. And so in a sense, they're enemies of the gospel. Why? For your sake. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake. What does that mean? In their rejection of the gospel, you get a chance to accept the gospel. So they're enemies. God allows Jewish resistance to the gospel in order to provide an opportunity for Gentile acceptance of the gospel. You see how God can use even a very bad thing for a good purpose? But from the standpoint of God's choice, it says, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Again, the fathers are the root of the olive tree. For the sake of God's covenant with Abraham, ratified through Isaac and Jacob, this is God's attitude to Israel. Though they're enemies of the gospel, no question about it. Uh, uh, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. So how could it be that the church historically has per perpetrated such horrible atrocities upon the Jews and still called itself the church of Jesus Christ? Hmm. I don't get that. I don't get it. If, uh, a verse, uh, uh, Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or would you say irrevocable or irrevocable? I think I like irrevocable. Is that okay? You know, that verse is used all the time. When a minister is going to leave the ministry, oh, don't do it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I think by application it applies. But I hate the fact that it's not kept in its original context. That promise was given with reference to the gifts and calling of God pronounced upon the Jews. 
I mean, if we're going to apply it to Protestant ministers who are walking away from their calling, okay. But the first intention of that marvelous declaration is to reassure everyone that God ain't finished with the Jews because the gifts he gave them and the calling upon them by God are irrevocable. That's the application. When is all that going to be fulfilled? Ah, during a period of time known as the millennium as in 1,000. During the millennial reign of Christ, every one of his promises to the Jewish people will be fulfilled. Romans 11, 30, 31, for just as you, again, speaking to Gentile believers, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jews, their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that's verse 32, so that he may show mercy to all. Jews, Gentiles, all of us have been boxed in, locked in, shut up in a box of disobedience and we can't get out of it. There's no escaping it. Clean it up all you want. We have all disobeyed a holy God. God is making it clear that we cannot get out of the box by merit or as I said, mitzvot, the Jewish word for good deeds, by religion, by human potential, by turning over a new leaf, by resolute. No, we're all locked in this box of disobedience and we cannot free ourselves from it we can't get out of it but by the mercy of God available to all Jews and Gentiles now folks theology means the study of God some people think it's just dry and dusty you think this is dry and dusty that the mercy of God can overshadow the horrid disobedience of the most privileged group on earth, the Jews? You think it's dusty and dry that the mercy of God can overwhelm the disobedience of Gentiles? No. Good theology is not dry and dusty. You know what it leads you to? Theology leads to doxology. Good theology leads to praise of God. Theology, the study of God. Doxology, the praise of God. You tell me how if you hold to replacement theology, it will lead you to a doxology. Replacement theology says, God, you made a really wonderful promise with Israel, but it's not going to be fulfilled. Replacement theology doesn't praise God. It denigrates his character. You know what it says? The sin of Israel is greater than your mercy. It pulls down God to earth. He's above it all. Worse. It says his promises were a lie. Worse. It says he's too weak to fulfill them. Worse. It says God doesn't even exist. He's a myth. But good theology leads to doxology, and good theology only comes from the scriptures, of course. And I know this is how it affected Paul, because look how he finishes this marvelous chapter, 
Romans 11, verse 33. Look, it's like he, he couldn't contain himself. And, you know, he knew how he was the chief of sinners. He knew he was a rabbi. He knew he was exposed to prophets and priests and oracles of God and temple observance and great privilege. And he knew he spat upon almighty God and he knew he was a persecutor of the way and he knew he blasphemed this Yeshua from Nazareth. And Paul was overwhelmed by all this and as he's making the case of the mercy of God, it's like he's overwhelmed and his good theological understanding led him to this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He can use Jewish disobedience to usher in Gentile salvation. And he could use Gentile salvation to arouse Jews like me to jealousy that we might be saved. And he can make us all bound up and indebted to one thing and one thing only, his mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Search it out, and you can never get to the bottom of his judgments and his ways. They are so deep, they're unfathomable. Replacement theology implies, applies human logic to the ways of God. But his ways are unfathomable. I cannot explain his grace, neither can you. I don't have a handle on his mercy, neither than you. I'm just so glad to be in on it. Are you? Then would you sing with me the doxology? Do you, do you know this one? Praise God from whom. Sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly. Praise Father, Son, and Holy.